Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Rob and Beth Crittenden. It's December 11th, 2020. We're in Dayton, Oregon. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Uh, first question and most important question for our purposes is why wine? You want to answer or should I? I can start it. Okay. We, uh, we met in, in college. <laughs> we met at university in the 80s and, um, and just started exploring wine while we were in school together. Um, and went on from there um, uh, exploring Virginia wineries as, as, as that industry was just beginning and kind of getting to know those before we moved to the Pacific Northwest after we married in 1985 and then started um, exploring in a big way the wines of Washington and Oregon. And my story is a, a tiny bit different in, in, in I'm from Virginia, going to school in North Carolina, and in Virginia, the drinking age back then was 18 for beer and 21 for wine. But in North Carolina, it was 20. It was 18 for wine. So it was kind of a forbidden fruit to be in North Carolina. So I, I could go to the store and buy wine and try it out, and I started tasting these wines and thinking, these are really interesting. They're so different, yet they're the same varietal or whatever it was, and I started same words on the label. <laughs> yeah, right. Same, I didn't use the word varietal for sure. Uh, and, and, and I just thought that very interesting to be the, the complexities of the whole that two bottles of wine with the same grape could be so different. So, but yeah, we, and we also found visiting wineries early on was a great way for a young couple to go do something that's free. <laughs> I mean, frankly, we would go there, it would be a great weekend outing to go and not spend a whole lot of money and go meet. And then we just found out that we found all the differences in the wineries very interesting. And that was really early Virginia wine industry. Was there something about wine as you started drinking it? Was, it, was there something about it that appealed to you? Was it the idea of wine? Was it the taste of wine? Was it, what was it about it that kind of brought you in? For, well, for me, the historical connections yes. to, uh, to both American history and world history, um, I, I've always found that to be very interesting. The long family, you know, to realize these families that go on for generations, uh, but the, also the idea of um, different places and, and uh, you know, we later became know, known as terroir, or mm -hmm. for us anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, that was just very interesting as well, very compelling. Mm -hmm. so, but, but I think when we lived, we, I, I did made a corporate move. I was working for a multinational company at the time and they moved us to Seattle shortly after, our, after we got married. We moved to Seattle to be in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Western Canada, um, and same thing. We went. The Washington wine industry was still quite young, mm -hmm. and the Oregon wine industry was still quite young. Uh, in the, this would be the mid '80s, so we started visiting wineries here as a great weekend adventure, and um, started making some connections. Not for business, but we just found it interesting, uh, and uh, we found Oregon to be um, a beautiful area green and, um, and, and moist, and, <laughs> and, but a very pleasant place. And we found the, 
I think we found if you compare the Washington and Oregon, we found the Oregon industry to be more uh, collaborative. Mm -hmm. And even in the early days, and this, I mean, there weren't that many licenses in 1985. So we got to know people, you know, it's, to, to us, it's still pretty relaxed here, but it was even more relaxed in, in the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was just, it was great. And we, and we, and the very first thing we were, had an offer shortly after we got here to work Harvest with Myron Redford. <laughs> and we did. And we started doing that for the next several years. We'd come down for his harvest party and got involved in that. And that was sort of our first, you know, real event to do something like that, to do actually harvest harvest grapes. I think I remember remember we picked Riesling in the pouring rain in late yep. October nineteen eighty five. I have no I don't have no memory of what that vintage was except that it was really wet when we picked <laughs> grapes. Did you enjoy it? I mean, was that something, the harvesting of grapes, was that something you enjoyed? Oh, absolutely. And the, and the fact that the, the community of people that would come Much from, more so. from yeah. Portland and other places, I suppose, would come there and just have it. It was so exciting and um, everybody was jazzed up and um, it was just a great event. So for two kids who had just moved across the country and um, didn't, you know, he was working out of our house. So we didn't have a work community. Mm -hmm. We didn't have family here. And, and all of a sudden we just dove into this wine community and, and it, it were very welcomed mm -hmm. and it just became part of our community. You mentioned that the Oregon industry in the 80s, small, not a lot of wine. Tell me what your kind of impressions were of the people and, and of the wine as you were getting to know the area. We were, you know, we were learning about wine ourselves, so I don't know if we ever you know, we could probably say this winery has more interesting wines than that winery, but as we were, you know, we were young and inexperienced, and I don't know if we, we tried to do a lot of listening and as much tasting as we could do, but we didn't know where this would lead. We had no idea, and it wasn't until several years later that we got this ridiculous idea to move back east and take and become the representative for the Pacific Northwest on the, on the Mid-Atlantic because, uh, you know, just the wines weren't being sold much there. Very mm -hmm. few. There were a few people there at the time. Mm -hmm. A few people selling wines in, in Virginia, where we were focusing at the beginning, uh, but not many. And mm -hmm. there were so many wines, Washington and Oregon, but particularly Oregon. Mm -hmm. Well, so what made you want to take that leap? As, as you're getting forward, you're, 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 getting, you're getting into the wine industries, you're enjoying wine, you're learning wine. What makes you take that next step and decide, I want to sell wine, and I want to sell it in Virginia? We had Naivete, <laughs> insanity. <laughs> yeah. I had no clue what we were doing. <laughs> we, we really didn't. Um, we, uh, we both have an entrepreneurial spirit. And um, and in our first, we, we go back and look at our first uh, um, anniversary cards to each other, talking about how uh, we're looking forward to opening a business, running a business together. That's something, mm -hmm. I guess, was just something that in the back of our minds. And so um, we had grown to know more and more winemakers hmm. over the years and when we um, decided to move back east after both of our kids were with us mm -hmm. um, we'd had two children and a cat <laughs> and and uh, decided to move back east um, to be closer to family hmm. uh, we started thinking about missing our community here hmm. and and the trips that we were making back east showed us that that they were not represented there. Mm -hmm. And we started, we came up with this idea. Mm -hmm. And I called from, from Seattle, from our home in Seattle, I called Virginia ABC board and said, this is what I'm talking about doing. Mm -hmm. So buying wine from wineries and then selling it to 
wine shops. Mm -hmm. And he said, that would be a distributor. Said, yes, that's it. <laughs> that's it. So um, that's the naivete, <laughs> yes. Tell me about that experience then. As you, you have the idea, tell me about the next step, like actually making it, implementing it, and then finding interest. Well, first of all, really it, made, it was sensible for us for me to keep my old job yes. so my company that moved me, moved us out here in 1985 moved us back in 1993 and we had had the idea that we would wait a while and let me kind of get my feet on the ground with a new job I was doing a lot of traveling when I was here I was traveling a lot in Pacific Northwest and Canada but ultimately they sent, started sending me to South America mm -hmm. And when I moved back east, they started sending me to Asia. So it was kind of sort of ironic. I moved from the northwest and go back east and then travel to Asia, but that's what I did. And so we were trying, but the idea was I'd keep my job so we wouldn't have to take any money out of the business. We could support ourselves with my job, and then Beth could spend most of the time, and I could do what I could with a job, with a full-time job in helping the business grow. And that's what we did for three and a half years, is we let the business grow uh, before I finally uh, put in my resignation in fall of uh, 19. 97. 97. And it was, it was, in fact, we were going to start the business later, but things, my, let's just say my, the job that I had at that time was not going in a good direction. So it decided, I think uh, we decided that maybe we got to step up the, the uh, timing. And it actually, it turned out to be great timing. 1994 was a good time of growth in the wine industry. And it was, it was right for, uh, you know, for the t time period for Oregon to be, to make, a, make that first statement. Um, when it really wasn't in, in the Mid-Atlantic at that time. Mm -hmm. There were a few. Dave Adelsheim was there. Mm -hmm. Kristen was there. Uh, Bethel Heights was there, I think. And some of the, pe some of the people, even the people that we represented at the beginning, had tried before, and the distributors tried them. Probably it was a, pushing a rock uphill, and they gave up. Mm -hmm. So some other ones that we, that we started representing at the beginning, we were their, probably their second distributor. Mm -hmm. Starting a business for our family in 1994 was a, a different story <laughs> because he was traveling to Asia mm -hmm. um, and we had a, one and a four-year-old. Mm -hmm. And so we were the classic minivan company mm -hmm. and I'd strap the kids in the minivan and the three of us would make deliveries. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, um, that, w that was a hard, hard part, <laughs> um, but, but definitely well worth it. Both of our kids definitely grew up in the in the business. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people in our industry, in our in, at the wholesale level, will, will refer to a minivan distributor as some sort of like a negative connotation. For us, it's very positive because that's how we started. It I was mean, red. I mean, <laughs> you, keep, you keep your overhead low, and you know, you just have this, this, you know, the enthusiasm to go out and sell wine, and you make the deliveries yourself, and you do everything. You're the janitor, and you're the president. Mm -hmm. You do everything to try to keep it together. And, and, and of course, Beth did that with two little kids in the car. So she'd make deliveries with kids in car seats. And we finally um, hired our first full-time employee um, after 18 months. Mm -hmm. And so it, was, um, so it was the two of us. And, and, uh, and he just retired last month. That's amazing. So 20, 26 years later. That's yeah, amazing. 25 years later, yeah. <clears throat> so I want, to, I want to approach this from both sides. So I'm curious, first of all, about the Oregon side of things. So, what were you what were you looking for in Oregon wines, and and what was the what was sort of the commonality among the wineries you wanted to distribute in the early days? What were you looking for as kind of a, as a customer in the early days? Well, first, I think that we thought um, that because Washington grew Cabernet, Merlot, which was very popular at the time, and um, other other things, but particularly Chardonnay, Cabernet, Merlot, that 
in the end, representing Washington and Oregon, that Washington would be more successful for us, and, and it was quite the opposite. Uh, so that, I mean, that's how we began. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of it was we started, we, we had the obvious relationships like Myron Redford. Um, we had those in, 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 in a couple in Washington the same way, but the handful of the wineries we already knew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then other ones were just, again, there weren't that many licenses. Mm -hmm. So when you looked out and you say, okay, who else is out there that represent really the, the main core of or the Oregon wine industry that really should be represented um, at that time just in Virginia? Mm -hmm. And that that changed later, but um, and so it was. You know, we had we, we represented Irie, you know, um, Sokol Blosser, and along with um, Amity Oak Knoll, mm -hmm. up near Hillsboro. Mm -hmm. um, there was a handful of wineries because there was just a handful of licenses mm -hmm. who were big enough to even export to uh -huh. another state who who were interested. Mm -hmm. And and were they? You mentioned that you were the second distributor for a lot of people. People had some people had tried before and, and struggled. Did you have to do a lot of hard selling that yes. you would? That you tell me about that process of convincing people you could do your job. Oregon makes wine. <laughs> <laughs> hard selling to the wineries. Either either uh, wineries first of all. Okay, I'm, I'm curious yeah. about that side first of all. I think probably so, also some people felt sorry for us and just bought I think bought so. the wine. You know? Well, but but for Oregon to to convince to convince growers. Mm -hmm was um, we were shocked coming from other businesses mm -hmm. um, at, at sometimes when we would we'd call and we'd say what we were doing or we'd, we'd come by and and um, they'd say yeah sure how much do you want and this you know and put a give us credit terms it's like <laughs> yeah well, really? work, working for a <laughs> working for a big it's company um, and placing a purchase order and saying do I need to pay you in advance they said no no we'll give you you net, net 30 days and like Really? I mean, you wouldn't say it. You'd think that. Really? You're going to give me net 30 days on a brand new business? I have no credit? They give me that, but they did. It was just complete trust. Operating on complete trust. But we've always had as a pillar of our company to pay earlier on time, and that's just, it serves us all well. Um, in advance and first, for first orders a lot. Right. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, so early on, the, the, the idea that somebody would sell us wine on credit <laughs> for a brand new business seemed lunacy, but we were happy to take it. Mm -hmm. But we always honored that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I would, I'd call, even from Seattle, um, before we moved back east, I'd call some of the people that we had met and, and said, this is what we have in mind. They said, cool, that's great, we're with you. <laughs> and I'd walk out, of, walk out of the office and I'd say, guess what? <laughs> you know? So it was, it was kind of shocking how, um, how open everybody was and how supportive. Mm -hmm. But not surprising in retrospect. In retrospect, the, right. The collaborative nature, yeah. And then on the other end, as you mentioned, Oregon, not exactly a brand name at that time, barely a brand name now. Tell me about convincing people of, of Oregon. Well, it's a brand name. <laughs> it is in Virginia. <laughs> yeah. In fact, a lot, of our, a lot of our producers, we heard a lot of our producers over the years saying, wow, the, the Oregon selection in Virginia is better than it is in Oregon. <laughs> now, Virginia's Virginia and D.C. and Maryland, as we work, it's, mm -hmm. they're very big Oregon states now mm -hmm. because, you know, we got started early. So mm -hmm. we had that, that many more years on so many other states. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the early days there of, of, of introducing Oregon wine to that market. I'll I tell you a, a, just, a, just an interesting story we were telling this the other day is um, uh, I think the first market visit w w was Susan Sokoblosser came to the market. So this had been probably late 1994. And I still had my other job. And, you know, small companies, you have a hard time retaining people because you can't offer benefits and all that. Some of the jobs are part-time. Hmm. We had a sales rep in the middle of the state in Richmond, and that person quit just before Susan's visit. So I had to take a day off work, 
drive to Richmond, meet Susan, and we went out to a wine shop that was pretty well known at the time. And we went in and we talked to the guy and we showed him four wines. Um, Susan did a nice presentation. And uh, the guy said, did you know that we make wine here in Virginia? And Susan said just very sweetly, she said, yes, I did know that. Here's the difference. In Virginia, you can find Oregon wine, but in Oregon, you can't find Virginia wine. And the guy took it very well, but it was really true. It was like, that is true. A lot of places make wine, but Oregon is successfully distributing wine in other states. People mm -hmm. are finding it something that they want to buy. Mm -hmm. What about, do you have an idea what it was that appealed to that market about Oregon wine? What, what was the, 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 the buying, the selling point for you for Oregon wine? Why did it successfully distribute there? You know, I think that, I think that if we could uh, successfully translate to the customer our own experiences, because, you know, we always say with every wine there's a story. And if you can, if you can somehow, without, I mean, it would be nice to put everybody in a car and take them to Oregon and show them around, then you, then you got it made, right? Mm -hmm. And that's it. Then you're, they're sold. Mm -hmm. And we do a lot of that now, actually. But we do it in small bites, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if we could take every customer, I've said that for many times, I've hey, just get all these customers in the car and bring them to Oregon and show them, then business is easy. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think when we, when we tell them our story and, I, and they see our enthusiasm, I think a lot of them will take, and then, then it's a matter, then they have to sell it to the next level. It doesn't necessarily translate to the consumer. So that also involved a lot of night and weekend tastings where you're standing in a wine shop, and people, our salespeople still do that to this day. Of course, everybody does that, you know, in the, in the wine industry, as you stand in, a, in some wine shop or whatever, and, you, and, you're, and you're tasting out uh, wines and telling the story of the wine mm -hmm. and, and teaching people about it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of at home dinners mm -hmm. a lot <laughs> you know <laughs> i'll look some of the, over some of the pictures that i gave you and remembered all these different dinners that we did at, yeah. at our and tastings at our own home because our, our first warehouse was a 20 by 20 self-storage <laughs> self-storage unit. <laughs> unit with an air conditioner yeah, yeah that we got a friend to hook up an air conditioner in it so <laughs> So we didn't have a tasting space. Mm -hmm. no. And nowadays, you know, there's all kinds of things that can be done with uh, Zoom and others, mm -hmm. um, being able to get samples to people and have them taste, and the, and the person can be in, you know, can be in Oregon or they can be in Sicily, for that matter, mm -hmm. and talking to people and, and selling wine that way. Mm -hmm. So technology is also allowed for that. But no, we, we lot, I did a lot of uh, a lot of weekend tastings, night mm -hmm. tastings, wine dinners, all those sorts of things. To, mm -hmm to, to uh, continue to push that rock uphill. And it wasn't until, oh, a year or two before the movie Sideways came out that Oregon really started breaking loose and it started getting easier. And when it finally, when the final, this was, the, this was 10 years later, this was like 2004, 2005, right along there, there was this, the momentum came where literally we had to, we had to add more wineries because we couldn't get enough wine. There were also some short vintages in there, some low yielding mm -hmm. vintages, 03, 04, 05. So it was hard to keep the pipeline flowing, mm -hmm. and we 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 added so many wineries at that time just to try to get wine to sell from Oregon. So we went from you know famine to feast. <laughs> you mentioned earlier the the story, telling the story. And obviously, we hear that a lot. People are selling wine. You're selling the story of of those. Tell me about that from your perspective, since it's not you. The one, you're not the ones making the wine. You're you're translating someone else's story, or you're helping them get their story across. What are the what about a story appeals to people? What what are the stories you found to be successful, and why did some wines sell better than others based on, on the story? Every wine, every winery has a different story, a different relationship with us, 
so it's it's more translating um, not only the story of the winery, but 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 how we interact with it. Why mm -hmm. why it's compelling to us to bring it to the customers. Mm -hmm. What's compelling in the bottle, and what's compelling about the the people that we know and love mm -hmm. at the winery. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, as far as the the. The, both the terroir and the wine and the and the mark of the winemaker. Um, sometimes a wine, we have many cases where our customers, being the owner of the shop or the owner or the restaurant, the psalm, the you know whoever it is that's the buyer of the restaurant, they would they can they they may love particular producers of ours, but they don't buy the wine. Mm -hmm. They love the story, they love the person, but they don't like the wine. Mm -hmm. That's okay because they find another wine that they like that they kind of goes. So you also have that going on. Mm -hmm. um, people come there and say, "Come on, man, you you know you love it, but yeah, I just can't do that." Or my customers don't want that, mm -hmm. but they so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's okay because that's why there's so many different wines in the world. Mm -hmm. It's okay. We'll mm -hmm. find them. We'll find something. In the, in this case, we'll find something from Oregon for them to buy that mm -hmm. they find that, that to 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 fill that to fill that need. Mm -hmm. So obviously, with Oregon, you're, you're talking about Pinot Noir largely is what you're selling in the early days. Pinot, Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris. Yeah, Chardonnay was pretty Some. rare at that time. A little um, bit. So yeah, Brick, yeah. Brickhouse were early ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pinot. Yeah, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris. And obviously, you mentioned Sideways and the effect that Sideways had on, on Pinot Noir in general and Oregon Pinot Noir. I'm, I'm curious in the in the early was who was drinking Pinot Noir? Were you finding that it was uh, was that people were looking for it? Were you finding that it was mostly Psalms who enjoyed it, or were you finding that people actually wanted to buy it to, to distribute it? It's kind of an S. It was kind of an S curve. It started <laughs> off slowly, and we pushed and we pushed and we pushed, and then it got a little bit easier and a little bit easier and a little bit easier, and then you know, <laughs> then it let loose. And, uh, and and you know, people always they always credit sideways, but it was really it happened before that. Mm -hmm. The, it, that was just that added that just poured gasoline on the fire. We were we didn't need sideways. The Oregon had already busted loose within within a couple of years before that. Things had started to go kind of crazy. But in the early early days, um, when you know we we started with with fifteen growers. In Oregon? No, just oh overall probably yeah. But you know and and um, and the customers that we called on wanted to support us. I mean they they saw they saw me carrying a case and a kid and, and trying to hold on to a toddler, you know, and so um, they were very supportive of us mm -hmm. and and um, and because of that they wanted to buy something from us and what we had was Oregon wine. Mm -hmm. So they did. They mm -hmm. bought it. Mm -hmm. um, if if I had gone out on the market with South African wine, they may have, you know, this maybe a, we might be in a different place having a different conversation, <laughs> but that's that's how we started and that's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what we had to sell, and so that's how they supported us. Mm -hmm. So the granted to, to make it all work, we did add other areas of the world. We, we and we did that fairly quickly. soon. Some people came to us looking for a small distributor that could really give them the attention they desired, mm -hmm. and so we we started picking up portfolios from 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 Europe mm -hmm. and California. And California, mm -hmm. but it's always been our heart and soul has been the Pacific Northwest Absolutely. and particularly Oregon. So um, So to this day, we're still as much as we have a great. Italian portfolio and a great French portfolio and a great uh, Spanish portfolio and a sake portfolio. We're still the Oregon guys, <laughs> and we I think we will always be the Oregon guys, and that's okay because mm -hmm. people come to us for people look at our portfolio and they go, for for instance, a producer that maybe we would like to represent here still, and they'll say, 
ooh, you have a lot of Oregon wines. And that, that is true. And that, is, and that is because we're the Oregon guys and they're going to come to us for Oregon wine. Mm -hmm. And that still happens today because uh, we, we were talking to somebody this week about, um, about selling champagne. We have some great champagne producers. And like, why don't we sell more of these producers? And people say, well, you're not my champagne guy. Mm -hmm. You're my Oregon. <laughs> So I'm curious, as you were growing, especially as you were trying to add to your portfolio as Pinot Noir and Oregon wine was starting to kind of boom, what do you look for in a, in a client? What do you look for in someone whose wine you're going to sell? What, is the, what are the kind of the key factors for you and someone you want to do business with? You want to answer that? No. I'll answer that. You're, you're, you're the one that, um, in, in the business, I, I've, um, I've always concentrated in operations, mm -hmm. and he's in sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we found early on when um, when a, a grower called us, and and I I saw how expensive their wine was. Not not Oregon, fortunately, <laughs> it was an importer. Um, and I said, "Are you kidding me? People <laughs> buy this stuff." So, so they took me off those calls very quickly. <laughs> so, so, so you're better, you're a better one to answer what we're looking for. With the size of, with, in, in the case of Oregon, in the size of our portfolio, we're, if 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 someone, if we're looking at someone new, or someone comes to us and really wants to show us their wine, they can make really, really good wine because there's so much great wine being made. Here. Ne never better than today. I mean, it gets just gets getting gets getting better in the state. Just the know-how, um, as the, you know, and I think that it comes from the collaboration of the wineries that probably does it as well as anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. But if somebody new comes along, there's with the with the amount of wineries that we represent, and the fact that there's wine available to sell, it's not like the mid 2000s um, that the wine is there's wine to sell. There's got to be something that's like maybe a terroir that that is missing in our portfolio. Something like you know something uh, particularly maybe an maybe an ABA mm -hmm. in the state that we're not we're not well represented in because we really hadn't found anything until we have found something, so uh, like that. Mm -hmm. And we've like also that. found that if we if, we can't buy based our, on our own tastes and preferences because those don't match mm -hmm. the thousands of customers mm -hmm. across Virginia, DC, Maryland. So, um, so we we um, look for a broader broader perspective, but you had a. Um but we really do both. I mean, there's certainly edgier wines that only appeal to to the real. I want to say nerds, but you know the really the people looking for mm -hmm. stylistically or terroir, you know whatever it happens to be, they're looking for that. We will buy them because say this should be in our portfolio, mm -hmm. even though we know it's going to be. A tough going, tough go because you're going to have a much smaller market, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. you might have something that's a cat. We say cast a wider net, mm -hmm. so you have kind of a mix. If you go out there and, and just fall on the sword and just sell the really difficult stuff, you won't stay in business. The mm -hmm. stuff that you like personally, but maybe other people don't match the same way. That's mm -hmm. the, that's what we're faced with. Or we'll be back to minivan company. Or we'll be back to minivan company. That's true. But you put it really well yesterday, talking to a grower about about how you can point to every single wine and every single brand um, winery in our book and and um, and give a compelling argument for why it's there. there. There's a reason. If I can't make that argument, it shouldn't be in our portfolio. Right. 
You mentioned AVAs, and I, I'm, I'm curious about your, your, obviously the AVAs in Oregon are, are fairly new, the fact that we have more than just Willamette Valley and uh, the valleys with all the sub-AVAs. Is that something that has caught on outside the state? Do people now recognize the various sub-AVAs? That's a really good question. I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> it has, um, but at the beginning, I think Oregon jumped on it locally faster than the, than the national market could catch up, and I begged producers to keep the word Willamette Valley on the label. Willamette Valley is the strong, still to this day the strongest word. And our friends down in Southern Oregon will <laughs> cringe with, you know, because we do represent, we represent some growers outside the Willamette Valley, just not many. But Willamette Valley is still a very, very strong mm -hmm. marketing. marketing idea mm -hmm. for the association. It's a, lot of, a lot of our producers, when the AVAs came into place, they immediately took Willamette Valley off and put on Eola Amity or Dundee Hills. And people would say, well, nah, I don't want Dundee Hills. I want a Willamette Valley one. <laughs> and, and, you know, talk about pulling your hair out. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. beg, beg the wineries. And, and gradually they've come back around, mm -hmm. I think, to doing that. Because it is a big selling point still to this day to have Willamette Valley. But over time, people are understanding, particularly... Mm -hmm. Our customers are understanding better now. How well, well that translates to the next, mm -hmm. to the end user, let's say the consumer. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't know where that is really so much. But I do know that it's over time. It's it's taken time. Mm -hmm. and, and we spend a lot of time um, educating our own sales team, mm -hmm. and and by and and our customers by again bringing them out here, doing a lot back in Virginia and mm -hmm. in DC. Um, it's. We spend a lot of time talking about the different AVAs in the growing regions. I would say that I would say, particularly our sales team is very well educated mm -hmm. on it, um, and our and I think our top customers are very well educated mm -hmm. on it. I, again, I just don't know how it translates to the consumer. If you were to pull a, the average Pinot Noir drinker, let's say, and pull them aside and say, "Tell me about the the differences between the Dundee Hills and the Old Amity and McMinnville and Yamhill Carlton," and see what they say, that would be an interesting. Interesting uh, exercise. That'd be a very interesting exercise. Even here in Oregon, that'd be an interesting <laughs> exercise. So tell me about the, uh, you mentioned you kind of, about 18 or so months in, you hire your first employee. Tell me about the kind of the growth of the company and, and the expansion and sort of what you, what your, your kind of goal was at the outset and, and, and if you've sort of followed the path you anticipated. Um, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we started, uh, our business, or still to this day, our warehouse is in southwestern Virginia, which is not, which is more rural, but it was where we were based because of my job. And uh, we, our, our crazy idea at the beginning was to sell Pacific Northwest wines in the southwest part of Virginia. It was going to be a part-time company. Yeah, it was going to really be part-time, exactly. <laughs> and we really didn't think it would grow that much. Mm -hmm. And quickly, we started getting calls from the areas like northern part of this Virginia in the DC suburbs which mm -hmm. is a really really it's a high population area and also um, you know a lot of restaurants a lot of wine mm -hmm. shops and we started getting calls from there we started getting calls from Richmond the center of the state state capital and so we quickly became a statewide distributor very quickly mm -hmm. we never thought that happened that was that was number one number one that, that happened and the, the other markets the the DC and Maryland came came later mm -hmm. but no it didn't go that way and then in the beginning of course we did we thought we were going to be Pacific Northwest only mm -hmm. um, and then it we, we quickly added Cal, you know California and other people heard about us and other in, in would come to us and say would you be interested in looking at our Italian portfolio or whatever so that happened so no, it did not go as we thought, but in a very good way. Yeah, talk about growing organically. <laughs> yeah. And we, we added when we had to add. Mm -hmm. when, when we didn't have any more hours of the day to put in, we had to add another person to do something else. Or 
Um, I think we were flattered that people would come to such a small company that to have two people didn't know what they were doing and um, want us to represent their wines. And I think we were, I think that was very flattering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, over the years, we've said this so many times, we were just blessed to be able to hire people smarter than we were. So the first person that we hired, this first full-time employee, was a delivery driver who had been driving for, years. delivering wine, wine for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he... For a much larger company. Yeah, so he could tell us what to do, mm -hmm. how to set up a warehouse and how to make <laughs> That's true. I deliveries. Learned, I learned how to sell to restaurants from a guy we hired in Richmond who, who, uh, who I didn't know what, you know, I made so many mistakes walking into the restaurant at the wrong time of day. What we were doing. Mm -hmm. My know. first sales call, um, they had to, the, the customer had to tell me, um, I would tell him a price and he said, no, 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 you're supposed to tell me the price that you're going to charge me. <laughs> not the price that I'm supposed to sell it for. So we were really clueless. Yeah. It brings up an interesting point. I'm curious about the differences in selling to different types of entities, whether it's wine shops or restaurants. So what, did you, what have you learned over the years? What are, what are the kind of key points in selling to the various places you sell to? Hmm. I think, I think consultative selling is very important, meaning that rather than saying this is what I have in my bag today, this is what, you're, this is mm -hmm. what I'm going to show you because this is what I want to show you, mm -hmm. you know, we like to tell, we often tell our salespeople, you first have to determine what, the custom, what, what will help the customer's business. And that doesn't matter whether it's retail or restaurants. What's going to help make your customer successful? Um, and some of that, the best salespeople, not just in our company and others, are really good at going around and looking around a wine shop, for instance, and finding out what's missing. Okay. And, and then pointing that out to the customer and then providing a solution to that mm -hmm. so that everybody wins in that, in that case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big one. But I think, I think um, you know, we, we can say that you want to uh, provide something that will help their business. And by sometimes helping their businesses, you're giving something their customer wants that maybe they don't realize that that customer wants. Mm -hmm. And also, I think because of the passion, I think it's also okay to have something in your bag, something you want to show that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. So it may not be something the customers because if it, if that was the case, we never would have sold Oregon, right? We would have, we would just would have sold them, you know, varietal California or mm -hmm. whatever it was at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I think I'm a good mixture of that. But I think the one thing that a lot of distributors, including us, have had to learn over the years is that you really want to provide something to your customer to make them successful, her successful. Because if if they're not successful, we can't be successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With restaurants specifically, um, I'm, I'm, you mentioned going at the wrong time of day. Even um, what. Is it was that harder to sell to restaurants than to wine shops? Is that a, is that a, more difficult to get on a wine list? It is because the the scope is much smaller. Mm -hmm. In a wine shop, they'll they'll have you know maybe thousands of uh, of different opportunities, whereas a, a restaurant wine a restaurant wine list may have thirty. Mm -hmm. As a new distributor, uh, retail is always easier mm -hmm. because a retailer is is in this nationwide battle of hitting things in the right price point and still being able to make margin. Mm -hmm. And so if you're new and you're not everywhere, that's an opportunity for them to be able to find something maybe that's not across the street, that they've got a battle on price and mm -hmm. they've you know, raced to the bottom. Mm -hmm. So that goes quickly. Um, but, the, but restaurants, I guess we would say, are, I would say are overall more loyal because you develop the relationships and it seems the placements tend to stay longer mm -hmm. 
unless a wine really catches on at retail. So it's a different type of sell selling. It's a longer term. Longer term selling, yeah. So it takes longer to get into a restaurant on average. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But they would be more loyal to the brand. They'd be more loyal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm also curious. Obviously, you're not selling your own product here. You're selling other people's product, but you still have the passion behind it. That the, the, the similar to what a grower would have. Our product, really. So tell me about the rejection. I'm curious about like dealing with people who 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 don't want it for whatever reason, and and, and going back out there again, and, and, and getting back <laughs> getting back on the horse again. Well, I'm, well that's I, that's selling in general. I've always said that um, the the word no is a temporary condition. <laughs> In every aspect of our business, it, just, it doesn't mean doesn't mean no forever. It just means no today. <laughs> Until and I and I will say I've done a lot of cold calling with new salespeople where I'll go out. You know, the owner goes out, or at the time, you know, the little business and we have two sales reps. I would go out and work the market line, just walk, go along with the salesperson. And I will say that in all the years, that's 26 years, and I don't do nearly as much of it as I used to. I haven't done hardly any in the last few years, actually. But uh, but I will say, all the years that I've done, I've never been thrown out. Because I think a lot of a lot of salespeople, even even really uh, confident, uh, um, you know, not you know, salespeople that really are, seem to come across as being not shy, let's say, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. um, extroverted salespeople. A lot of them are secretly shy of going into in in the thought of of the rejection you get. Mm -hmm. And what I try to tell salespeople is, you will never make more progress in a sales call than you will on the, on the cold, on the very first call. You'll make the, because you enter and they look at you like, who are you, leave. <laughs> and by the end, if you, if you ask the right questions, by the time you leave, you've already developed a, a bit of a relationship. You've gone to, why are you here, leave, I hate you, <laughs> and there's a cat in my lap. <laughs> and it, to all the way to, oh, I hope I can see you again sometime. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's just been my own experience. <laughs> It wouldn't be an Oregon wine interview without an animal <laughs> showing up at some point. This is perfect. There's oh, a dog perfect. come around jumping your lap. Uh, you, so you're in, the reason you guys are in town this week was to do visits with your growers. I'm I'm curious. Uh, obviously, you do that regularly. What what are what are the what's the point of it? What's the goal behind your visits? What are you trying to get out of these trips this week? Um, this this week was because we're normally here in harvest uh, to help out on the lines doing whatever, mm -hmm. just to say hi. Uh, help them <laughs> feed their crew, whatever, <laughs> whatever's needed. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we weren't able to do that this year. Mm -hmm. and, and we also come back about this time of year just to check and see now that everything's bedded down. Um, barrel down. Barrel down. What's, uh, what happened? What, what's the harvest like? What can we, what can we expect? What, what story do mm -hmm. you have to tell? Mm -hmm. yeah, so you can think of it this way, they're kind, of, they're kind of ground level during harvest. If you ask them about harvest, they can tell you a little bit, but they're in the thick of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of see what's going on and then to make that, you know, a few weeks later when things are much quieter in December, you can come back and talk to them and then they have, let's say, a, a 3,000 foot view. Mm -hmm. And then later on they can have a 30,000 foot view, but you can get, and we can already go back and tell our sales team and start um, giving information to our people about what's going on in Oregon because mm -hmm. it is a really important part of our business mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of our portfolio but also our dollars. Mm -hmm. So obviously 2020 is a, was a tricky growing year for a number of reasons. Yes. Um, without You don't have to single anybody out but I'm curious kind of what your general impressions are, are of the 2020 harvest so far or what, what the growers are telling you so far about 2020. It's tiny. <laughs> yeah, it's tiny. Um, it's in many cases diff very difficult um, a, there are a lot of people looking at different things uh, about 
how they're going to approach it, whether they're going to release things early um, because of uh, all the chemistry about how um, the effect of smoke on wine grapes will affect the, the binding, the mm -hmm. chemical, mm -hmm. chemical mm -hmm. binding in the, in the finished wine. And, and when in the in the normal in the cycle that they can possibly sell it and, and have it be something that's that's interesting to the to the consumer, mm -hmm. um, but I the think there's still a lot of question marks. But because mm -hmm. of the fires that happened around around the area, mm -hmm. um, and and the smoke that affected different vineyards in different locations in different ways, mm -hmm. um, because of the because of the, the geology of this area, mm -hmm. um, and and the um, and how things settled up or down or it, it's we, we found really all over the board on this trip on the, this week mm -hmm. you know it, when we think back of representing 26 Oregon vintages some have been easy some have been difficult some have been unfairly difficult mm -hmm. um, when the when the uh, was called the, the wine press mm -hmm. will slam a vintage before the first grape is picked that didn't serve anybody well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's deceptive to the consumer it's hard on the grower, it's hard on the distributor, it's hard on everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the one we always cite the most was 2007. We're still drinking 2007s, they're wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yet that vintage was um, condemned before the first grape was picked. Mm -hmm. And that was really a shame, really a shame. It's almost like sometimes um, there's a need to slam a vintage or two every once in a while just to show that you're not somehow too close. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But but it, it, you can tell it bothers me when mm -hmm. I d to do it because, okay, if it's a bad vintage, if it's a difficult vintage, you point it out, that's fine, that's fair. But if, if you really, you know, before the first grape is picked, really, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so that's, I mean, that's just part of our business, mm -hmm. the ups and downs. So when you, have a, when you have a vintage like that, like a 2007, 2011 I know was another one people talk about being difficult. Not as hard. Yeah, not as, 2007 was the, mo was the one that probably us as a distributor took us an average three years to sell the vintage. Because it, you know, every time we reorder, you know, there would still be two seven two thousand seven at the property. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, two thousand eleven, I think, if I remember correctly, it was a smaller vintage, and I mm -hmm. think it sold easier. And mm -hmm. I love those wines, and I love two thousand sevens. But sevens also just economically when they came out. That's true. Also, that's true. Mm -hmm. We were heading into the recession, or mm -hmm. in the recession. Sure, that's true. Good point. So one thing we've we've heard a lot about in our conversations with winemakers over the years has been kind of the change in distribution in the last couple of decades. Obviously. Um, the idea that there used to be more distributors than, than there were wineries and now it's kind of flip-flopped in their mind. So tell me about what you've seen as, a, in the, as the biggest changes in distribution since you've been a part of it. Well, first of all, uh, that's not always true. And I think it has been written all over, you know, you see articles about how there used to be so many thousand distributors and now there's 250 or something. Well, there's at least 250 in Washington, D.C., so that can't be true. Uh, there's got to be more than 500 in New York City. so that. I would say in certain markets there are more distributors than there used to be, and clearly in some markets there's one or two. <laughs> so I, I can only speak to our markets, mm -hmm. and there's more distributors than there ever have been. Mm -hmm. But also more wineries. But I think I think as what, they've grown, you know, as, as that's wine, true. There are, wine regions true. have grown. But I think what's also changed mm -hmm. is particularly in retail, and particularly where uh, where it's a pretty wide open um, legally, mm -hmm. people can do whatever they want to do. Um, the Gro the grocery stores um, have uh, have taken away local buying authority, and what that does then is you get this homogenization, be the right word, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of 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 their market. So mm -hmm. if if you're a grocery store that's nationwide, mm -hmm. and you want to have 
every wine the same in every store, that means it has to be an extremely large winery, mm -hmm. which in the case of Oregon pushes most of those wines out. Mm -hmm. And not just Oregon, but since we're talking about Oregon, um, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. the case. So that's had a very detrimental effect. And in fact, in some of our markets, we call them wine deserts, where the grocery stores have put almost all the independent retailers out of business. Restaurants are fine, for the most part. Some of them are corporate, but usually the usually the uh, independent movement's reasonably strong most places. Uh, but it's, it's the retail that's been really hurt, the local retail, where people, individual shops. Mm -hmm. um, the, mm -hmm. the most, um, I'd say the most savvy have, have survived, mm -hmm. going up against the big corporate giants. But, and it would be fine, that, you know, it's fine for corporate giants to sell wine, but they do tend to want to buy wines that are carry, made in large quantities so they can they can have a... Carry them nationally, mm -hmm. makes it easier. Yeah, mm -hmm. makes it a lot easier. Sure. Makes more sense for what they're doing. And they're looking at scan data. They're looking at the numbers more than they're looking at the wine, I would mm -hmm. think. You at know, the whole, stories that we tell. Yeah, yeah, they're not, <laughs> they're yeah. not buying the wine for the stories. Mm -hmm. And for the terroir, necessarily. They're, they're buying it for... If it, if it sells and it makes them money, they're going to put it everywhere. Mm -hmm. You can't blame them, really, but it doesn't work for people like us and our growers. So for Oregon specifically, tell me what the, what the biggest changes you've seen to the Oregon industry, again, in, your, in kind of your years of, of being part of it, both as consumers and, and, as, and as distributors. What are the biggest changes you've seen and what's the, what's the biggest, uh, how, how has the demand changed for Oregon wine in, in your eyes? Well, I mentioned the S-curve, mm -hmm. um, and it, particularly on Pinot Noir. Chardonnay is still, Oregon Chardonnay is still a bit of a push, but that's okay. It gets us something to work on. You know, we love, we personally love Oregon Chardonnay. We have some real enthusiasts in our market. But it's not like Pinot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still it's still a bit of a slog to take to take it out there. But people will say, "I love this wine." Oh, I can't sell this wine. And it's, Come on, man. You know. <laughs> but but um, I'll tell you a little story. Maybe they'll answer your question. Uh, some some years ago, one of our growers here, and I honestly don't remember who it was, asked asked me about the Burgundies that we carry, and I said, "We don't really carry much Burgundy anymore." Even though, you know, all of us in, in here, everybody drinks Burgundy. And it's like, you don't carry much Burgundy, why? And I said, because you won. <laughs> Oregon won. And in fact, Oregon used to play second fiddle to California Pinots, which used to drive me crazy. Uh, because I always loved Oregon so much with the climate and what, what, what the purity of the wine that came to market. I just always preferred them over um, California Pinots. But that's not even a question anymore. You know, Oregon, Oregon has, it has won. In my view, Oregon has won. And the collaboration that we saw at the, at the beginning on a much smaller scale, just as consumers and enthusiasts, um, the collaboration in, or between Oregon growers, mm -hmm. um, as we got to know more of them and really represent more of them, you know, went into business with them, mm -hmm. um, and, and seeing, um, and even advising when someone has um, someone gets phylloxera, you know, for the first time, we tell them, "Well, call this guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's been he's been dealing with it in their vineyards." Or they get a stuck fermentation and they start calling around, and and it's you don't see that in other wine growing regions, and it's it's just it, it's wonderful. It is really it, wonderful. It, I think to it see is that. it is one of the key reasons for Oregon's success. Mm -hmm really is the is the collaborative um, culture here 
you don't see that as much in other places. Any anywhere else we've been in, on the planet, on the wine growing no. planet, have we seen the the how you know your the guy across down the road is your competitor in one sense, but I don't think most people look at it that way. Mm -hmm. It's a real we're all you know the old thing about the rising the rising tide. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's nowhere is it more true than here. And then working, you know, being in the business for as, as long as we have, um, working with, um, you know, meeting interns who then become assistant winemakers, who then become winemakers and owners in their own right, mm -hmm. and and to see um, the generations coming about and and how much more um, history mm -hmm. for the vintages, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to, to to learn more and more about each vintage. But um, but everything that they're bringing, all the intelligence, the um, the the thought behind what they're doing, the experience, mm -hmm. um, it's just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It's just phenomenal talking to some of these guys and seeing where they've come from the days where we were harvesting in the rain at Amity. <laughs> you know, it's true. If you follow, follow the evolution evolution of our Oregon portfolio, you will find that. We've, where'd you find this guy? Well, this guy was working for this guy that we yep. were representing, and we followed him to this place. And yeah, that's the begats. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Oregon Wine Bible, yes, beget, beget. beget. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, where, how would you, if you had to define, how would you define your role? What, what is the role of the dis distributor? What is your role when it comes to both both the sides you're serving? How do you define what, what role distribution plays in sort of the or in the sort of the wine industry at, at large? We, we translate. Um, we, we really seek to be partners, both with our um, wine growers mm -hmm. and our customers, um, to, to, be, to be the best link that we can to, to translate from, from the, the dirt <laughs> to the table, basically. Mm -hmm. but, um, and our, our growers, want us to sell their wines and as, have as much exposure as possible in the market and mostly on i mean most people want it on and off premise mm -hmm. in restaurants in retail mm -hmm. they want it in both places um and we try to do the best job of that that we can mm -hmm. and you know sometimes sometimes it doesn't you know a particular wine won't fit fit in a particular place because of personal preferences or whatever but for the most part if we're a good distributor we're trying to get as many points around and, and around that, that no matter where a person might go to eat or to buy wine or whatever it is that they can have that exposure to mm -hmm. to our our producers and two part sales and one part matchmaking or something mm -hmm. like that <laughs> so obviously we're we're talking to you the reason we're outdoors today we're dealing with uh, covid 19 it's december 2020 and we're still dealing with the effects of that i'm curious what the effects that has had on your sort of work life, business life this year, and what effects it's had on your, from your, in your perspective, on wine sales? All over the board. And we also talked to our comrades in other states, some people are actually up year over year, just like the wineries here in Oregon. Some of them are up year over year. It really depended on what channel you were in to begin with. Retail's exploded as people have, are drinking more at home, um, and it saved our backsides. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, so we're doing fine. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of, and I think the growers the same way. Growers that were mostly in restaurants have been hurt more because mm -hmm. um, you don't necessarily go from primarily restaurants to suddenly going into retail channel. 
automatically, but the people that were with the producers that were mostly retail. Wine clubs. Wine clubs. Have been they helpful. have a really strong wine club. Uh, other things like that are doing extremely well. Mm -hmm. So we're doing fine. We're not sure. I'm sure our competitors are all over the board, just like our comrades in other states are all over the board. But I think everybody's doing okay. It's just that we've, I think in a lot of cases, in our case, we had to really restructure our company mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a, different, it's a different, uh, different world out there right now. We, and I think it will be permanently. We walked into this 70% um, restaurant, 30% um, retail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and we walked into it thinking, okay, we, we now have 30% of our sales. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how, do we, how do we handle this for the year? Mm -hmm. And we started making plans based on it. But then, but then the retail that um, that stayed open, or even even one of our our um, premier shops hasn't been open to the public, mm -hmm. but their sales have increased tremendously because because they're keeping their staff and customers safe, mm -hmm. but they're still able to sell and keep things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, but retail has just exploded so much that it's it's helped bring our you know bring our business up again. Mm -hmm. And necessity is the mother of invention, and so um, and Beth and I, being sort of naturally entrepreneurial, it sort of it sort of taps into our, I don't know, it, it kind of it excites us in mm -hmm. a certain way. It was sort of because it it's wasn't it, it wasn't panicked at all, but it was sit down. What can we do? How can we change to make this work? And it was exciting. I mean, we worked. I mean, it was crazy back in uh, say March, April, May. Just mm -hmm. really crazy. We had to kind of we described it to people as. You know, you're like in a house, you're ripping it down to the studs and starting over again. But it allowed us to bring out our creative juices and, 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 and really do what we did. And it wasn't just us, our entire team. Yep. And if you look at our customers, our customers have been amazing. The way they have, they have responded. And even, even many of the wineries have tried to come out with ways to make it easier for us, to make it easier for our customers. It's been, an, it's been really, I think we'll look back at this period. You know, we always talk about silver linings in this period, and I think there's been many, many silver linings. Mm -hmm. We are in awe of, of some of the ideas that the wineries and, and our customers have come up with, some of the ways that they've restructured to make this work. It's, it's, it is so exciting. I mean, it's a scary time. It's in business. It's a terrifying time, <laughs> personally, with everything else going on in the mm -hmm, world. Mm -hmm. But, but um, just the business part of it, um, to watch how our coworkers have stepped up to the plate with just fabulous ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's been super exciting in this weird time. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. We definitely have found so many silver linings. Mm -hmm. Definitely a time that rewards creativity and, and flexibility for sure. Rob, you mentioned permanent changes. I'm, I'm curious what you see as, as we come out of the pandemic in the next, hopefully soon, next whatever, <laughs> however long, uh, as, as things go back to normal in quotes, what, what, what is going to change permanently in your mind? What are you seeing as you look ahead? Video, video uh, selling, mm -hmm. um, winemakers doing a, permanently now doing things with sales staff and even with consumers now online where people can um, maybe even get We've seen that this week where people are in Oregon are bottling up small packages to send out to their, maybe to their mailing list mm -hmm. so they can taste with the grower mm -hmm. online and, mm -hmm. and buy from them. It's a super idea. Mm -hmm. Those kind of things I think will stick for one thing, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, I think not in our favor, I think in some of the markets uh, where restaurants have gone out of business, they might, we were expecting that the pe first people to come to market with money when this is over with or even before it's over with and negotiate good leases 
will be chain restaurants, which don't serve us. They're just like chain retail. They're going to carry things in a, on an, at a national level, mm -hmm. which doesn't really serve our most of our producers. So I think some of that will happen. I hope it doesn't, but I think I'm expecting it to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I think some of the, and I think also the creativity that came out of this. I think a lot of the things that people have invented have found out that works. Curbside pickups and all that will become will stick. I think those will stay, making it easier for people in their busy lives to to you know find what they want online, but go by and pick it up themselves or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see that. Anything else you can think of? You think will stick from a? Who knows? Who knows? I'm not just thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Absolutely. Let's see. Since this is a this is gonna be kept. Forever, uh, we'll see how how close I can. <laughs> the dangerous thing about making a prediction on camera, right? <laughs> exactly. Speaking of predictions on camera, um, the future of the Oregon wine industry. What do you, what do you see Oregon wines industry looking like in the next five ten years? What, what, are there any changes you see on the horizon? What, what's the kind of the outlook for you? Climate change is our greatest fear. Mm -hmm. It's not only upsetting the terroir of the vineyards, and this is happening all over the world, mm -hmm. um, but Oregon's near and dear. So, um, I'll, we'll just talk about that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that sites were chosen specifically based on the, not just the soil type, but, the, but the, the, um, where the vineyard faces, mm -hmm. the varietals that were put into the ground based on its location, all that gets turned on its head. That's the biggest threat to the industry. The fires are dreadful. And it, I think that they're going to be, you know, we've heard a lot of people talk about, I'm glad it's over. You know, talking, I almost heard like that, that's my one, one big horrible fire smoke thing for my career. I don't know if that's the case, unfortunately. So that's the biggest threat to the industry. Mm -hmm. I know you didn't ask about threats, mm -hmm. but that, that's a reality mm -hmm. um, that we are all having to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this climate change, it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's terrible. And, mm -hmm. you know, the faster we can address this, uh, in, you know, or as a world, um, the more, the faster we can put a stop to it, at least not make it any worse. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it's, it's. You can see it. We had a friend. We had a friend tasting a, uh, a customer friend tasting in Virginia that he was tasting a whole lineup of Pinots from around the world, including a couple from Oregon. And he asked me about this one wine. He said, "I remember this wine as being um, more graceful, more elegant, more you know, um, higher acid, all that. What happened? This thing tastes sort of. It's kind of." fleshy and flabby what happened what did they change winemakers and i said no it's climate change man <laughs> you know that particular year was particularly warm and you're just not your memory is not what you tasted when you tasted it <laughs> you know 15 years ago that's what that's what worries us <laughs> what about from a varietal perspective you mentioned oregon chardonnay something you personally love or struggling to sell a little bit kind of pushing that rock Obviously, there are other varietals coming on board in Oregon, none with the, the panache yet of, of Pinot Noir, but do you see more gamets, more, more sparkling, more things like that being sold outside the state? Or are you still thinking kind of Pinot, Pinot Chardonnay is sort of the bread and butter for Oregon? Well, it's, it's the bread and butter, but, but we, when we started in Oregon, we were selling Riesling and Mueller Turgau and Gewurztraminer and everything else. So. It's we've seen, mm -hmm. it, 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 we have we didn't come out of the gate just with Pinot and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. It's um, we've kind of seen. I think I think Chardonnay will hit it. Way. It's going to hit hit its S curve as well. I think Chardonnay will. It's not going to be linear. It's it's not, not going to be one of these gradual things that goes. It's suddenly somebody is going to write an article in some at some international level or something, and suddenly there's not going to be enough Oregon Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a lot of it that has been planted, so there's a lot coming in, which is making it. Even there's more being tossed into the market, 
but eventually I'm convinced it'll be it'll be the Pinot curve. Mm -hmm. People going, oh my gosh, these wines are fabulous, mm -hmm. and it'll like that. Um, <laughs> but again, you have to balance that with climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll start seeing more vineyards planted north facing. I mean, it's almost humorous to think when we started this that we could be saying that that people would prefer to put a north fount put in a facing vineyard, but mm -hmm. it might come to that. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's already happening actually. And and um, winemakers have they're they're doing this because they're it's a creative outlet. Mm -hmm. They're they're creative artists, and um, you don't want to just play with the same same mm -hmm. painting the same <laughs> the same materials all the time and so so you're going to experiment with the tempranillo and the mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. all, all the other varietals and we we see that and we we have for years and we'll see what catches on and what continues to to grow and be the next darling mm -hmm. but it but it's also a point of um, we you know teasing each other yeah. here no i'm not going to carry your tempranillo no i don't want to taste your syrah this is the Willamette Valley. Don't try to tell them, give me to buy your Syrah. <laughs> sure. It's, but it's sure. an ongoing thing because winemakers are are very creative mm -hmm. and um, and they want it. They you know I, you know here it is. Pinot Noir is one of the most difficult uh, grapes to grow and wines to make of any uh, any in the world. Yet they still go out because okay I make these Pinot Noirs, but I still want to go out and make my you know fill in the blank mm -hmm. Tempranillo or whatever. Mm -hmm. And. Um, but Pinot, Pinot still will, I mean, I think that the, the big reason, in my view, besides the collaborative nature of the Oregon wine industry, I think the, the big reason that, another big reason that, that Oregon has succeeded out of state more than Washington has, is because, uh, uh, because Oregon really defined itself as a, as a, with the varietals, I mean, California was doing Pinot, but California is more known for Cabernet and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. They defined it as varietal, whereas Washington was Cabernet and Merlot, which they had plenty of in California. Mm -hmm. That was a that was a big one. So you had the collaborative, but you also had the choice of varietals. Mm -hmm. Was a, a, a a huge boon to Oregon to having to having something that they could say as their own. When you think of when you think of uh, you know Argentina, you think of Malbec. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. and you know, if you think to you think of Burgundy, you think of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. You think of Australia, you think of Shiraz. Right, you mm -hmm. think of Oregon, you think of Pinot Noir. You think of Washington, you think of California. Think of California <laughs> and I think that's why Washington struggled. Mm -hmm. They make great wines, mm -hmm. but I think that I think they're up. They've always been up against, and I don't mm -hmm. think they've ever clearly defined themselves um, as a wine region like Oregon has. Mm -hmm. So about the future for yourselves and for your business, what do you see as you look ahead for the, for the two of you and, and for Roanoke Valley Wine Company? People ask that a lot because I think they're worried that we're gonna say, okay, we've been in this all along and you know, we're gonna, but um, I, I say without, without any doubt that I still am uh, I'm optimistic for the future. The mm -hmm. only thing that concerns me is climate change. Mm -hmm. I make that clear. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, 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 wines have never been better. I'm still enthusiastic about what people or our growers are doing. I still love the industry. I hope you love the industry too. <laughs> Still love the industry, even though we've been in it, a, you know, quite a while now. Mm -hmm. I've never tired of it. There's always something new, um, and uh, I'm I'm very optimistic for the future. And I I don't you know, I might keel over before I uh, <laughs> walk away from this walk away from this because it's been a great ride. It's been fun. It's really really been a wonderful time. And the people we work with, the people we employ. Um, 
that's that's there. We we, I mean, when we say this is a family company, mm -hmm. we mean it's a family company. We we thank our coworkers for being part of the RBWC family. Mm -hmm. This is, um, you know, this this whole industry <laughs> is is part of us. It's mm -hmm. part of our community. And I think a lot of the growers we work with that have been in this business a long time as well. Uh, I think they're taking the same, I, I get the feeling that they're kind of on the same sort of wavelength that we are, that we're just, we're going to keep going and keep going and keep going and it's not going to be, we're going to turn this age and we're going to mm -hmm. hang it up and walk away and go, you know, go buy a beach house somewhere. That's just, a, we, it's a, it's a, we love the industry. I think we all do. We're all passionate. And so we just want to stay in it. Mm -hmm. And as to looking forward um, to see what the future has in mind, you know, what the future has in store for this for this industry, um, you, 2020, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who could have ever seen 2020 coming? How can we, how can we um, be prognosticators and sure. see, see what the future will hold knowing what we've just been dealt? Yeah, I figure we, we, if we, we all make it through this in one piece, do okay, <laughs> we'll do okay. <laughs> All right, one last question for you. It's what we like to ask of, of couples in the wine industry who are making wine together, but I'm curious. Key to a successful marriage and having a, and have, and having a company together, having a business I together. I, almost, I don't know if those are... Those I, I, are almost, <laughs> I almost said this earlier when she was talking, is, is even though we went into business together, we had this dream as a married couple of starting a business together. Um, I would, I, in fact, I've talked in front of groups of people before to ask about, you know, starting a business, like an entrepreneurial class or sort of thing and said don't go into business with your spouse <laughs> not that we're a great we're a great business couple we, but we're it, great it, business it, partners but but it is a it is very difficult in a marriage mm -hmm. it is very difficult raising children and that's hard enough but when you're sharing you have the children and you're sharing a business it's tough mm -hmm. it's tough we don't don't recommend it but we've done it very successfully but don't recommend it <laughs> don't do that <laughs> <laughs> we truly tell people not to do yeah. it. What was the key to your success then? Uh, our first employee, hmm? the one who just retired, mm -hmm. um, sat us down within about a week or two of him being um, on board. And he said, okay, wait, wait, wait. You're both telling me to do different things. So you, you need to decide who's going to do what in this business. Hmm? And he really made us sit down and say, you know, Okay, what, what are you going to be in charge of and what am I going to be in charge of? Because rem I remember I was not in the business full time for three and a half years, first three and a half years. So when I came in, I must have been like a, you know, mm -hmm. coming in and suddenly the second person's there and telling everybody different things than what the first person told them. Mm -hmm. And I'd never been in sales before, so I had no experience in sales. And that was the, the bulk of what we're doing, you know, mm -hmm. just going out and introducing all these wines. So. Um, so we really had to sit down and think who was going to do what, and mm -hmm. it it just made a lot more sense personality-wise. I'm I'm the mom of the company. I'm the one that takes care of everybody and makes sure that we all have health plans mm -hmm. and everybody's <laughs> getting their flu shots. And, you know, I'm 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 the one that that makes the pimento cheese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and um, just makes sure that everybody is taken care of. So uh, the operations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ended up very comfortably going with me. So we made, we made a really clear delineation of what Beth does and what I do, mm -hmm. and that's made all the difference. People, I think, 
quickly understand that they don't need to talk to her about certain things and they don't need to talk to me about certain things. Hmm. Sometimes, sometimes funny, sometimes uh, uh, suppliers, growers, agents, whoever would come in, talk to Beth, and then they tur tur come into my office somehow because maybe, because I was the, I have no idea, but they'd come in maybe because I was the other owner. They'd walk into my office and I'd say, uh, I don't need to hear it. And he was, he was the, he was great at doing this because um, because I've worked with a lot of contractors over the years, um, building buildings and remodeling and um, buying trucks and everything else. So um, in the South, being a woman, uh, the the generation they would naturally uh, mm -hmm. the men in the industry would naturally go to him first, mm -hmm. and Rob was always really really good at saying you're talking to the wrong Crittenden. Particularly if you're talking about around construction and all that, she's way better anyway. <laughs> so it's, it's you know, without, without that backup, without, mm -hmm. without that delineation and us really understanding who is going to do what. Mm -hmm. um, but we've seen this in other, uh, other couples in our industry that hasn't been as successful as where that's not that, that clear line is not there, mm -hmm. where they're arguing about the same stuff and you've got, you, can't, you can't do that. You've got to know who's doing what and you have to respect the other's authority in those areas. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, because uh, on top of business partners, then you got the marriage. <laughs> Whoa, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Kind of an open mic here at the end. <laughs> no, I just I, I think so. I think we've said it. We're, okay. we're 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 incredibly optimistic about where Oregon's going. It's doing nothing but getting better. The the, the biggest challenge is climate change, and but the know-how is just getting better and better and better, and we see nothing but um, positive things in the future for the industry. And the people who have um, who accepted us right at the beginning in this new venture of ours. And, and who have supported us if we've grown and given us the opportunity to support others here as they've grown mm -hmm. um, it's just been invaluable mm -hmm. it's it's been such a such a brilliant relationship and a really wonderful supporting community all the way around mm -hmm. we're really really blessed wonderful well thank you both so much for taking the time for making this work in your schedule and sitting out in the cold with us here today Appreciate your time and your stories, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.